Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're listening to the Alonement Podcast. I'm your host, Francesca Spector, and this show is all about your longest and most important relationship, the one you have with yourself. It doesn't matter if you're single, married, or somewhere in between. Alonement means valuing your time alone regardless of your romantic status. Each week, I ask a new guest about the time they spend by themselves and why it matters. This week's guest is journalist and author Daisy Buchanan. I'm really trying to unpick a lot of the assumptions that I've made about myself based on who I've been trying to perform for other people. And I'm really excited about having this core of me that I don't have to share And again, it comes back to that, that we need to share absolutely all of ourselves. And I think that the value of time on your own well spent is protecting it. Daisy Buchanan is an award-winning journalist, podcaster and author. She's written a number of brilliant non-fiction books, including How to Be a Grown-Up and The Sisterhood. Her debut fiction title, Insatiable, will be released in early 2021. As a journalist, Daisy has written for everywhere from The Telegraph to Stylist magazine. She also worked for Grazia as their agony aunt in a column titled Dear Daisy. She now hosts the podcast You're Booked, where she interviews her favourite authors about what's on their bookshelves. This episode was recorded in person earlier this year, ahead of the coronavirus pandemic. Daisy, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been following Daisy's work for absolute ever, so it's so wonderful to have you here today on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So, Daisy, as Grazia's longtime agony aunt in your Dear Daisy column, you solved many other people's problems. Do you think you've always given the same good advice to yourself? When I've been writing agony art replies, what I've always had in my head is I think that everybody who is writing to me really knows what they feel that they should do and what it is that they want to do. And so I always try to write my response thinking, you know, I don't think that there's anything I can say here that's necessarily you know, obvious, or I don't think I can really give this person any new information. What I can do is give them permission to choose how they think and how they want to feel about this and to believe that what they instinctively want to do is the best thing to do. It's not always the case, but I'd say 90% of the time. And it took me a little while to realise that. Um, Now, I wish I could remember 
the name of this man, but I know he's famous for, I think he completed multiple triathlons in his 50s and beyond. Um, and he's American. Um, I'll have a Google. We can put it in the show notes. But he once said that he, someone said, you know, what's your secret? Because he was a dentist and a triathlete and did all sorts of amazing things. Anyway, he said, I talk to myself more than I listen to myself. And I love that. It's really this year that I've realized that my brain doesn't have to talk to me the way it wants to, that I can absolutely talk to myself. I can choose how I think. I can give myself really, really good advice. You know, I don't have to come to everything with a sort of terrible mental soundtrack. Um, And that's been really exciting and empowering. And I think that being an agony aunt definitely helped with that, that you know, because I really, I wanted to have the utmost respect for everybody who wrote in. And I've been learning, I think, to respect myself as well. And it's that, you know, you got this, as the memes say. So would you say you've become a agony aunt to yourself almost? Yeah, and I think that you have to be. Um, there's a podcast that I love listening to. That's maybe something that we'll come to later. When I think about how much I spend time on my own and how much I enjoy it. And then I think, it's reading and listening to podcasts. Am I really on my own then? But um, Brooke uh, Castillo, who is a Texan, he has a podcast called The Life Coach School. I'm recommending it to everybody. And I'm worried that everybody thinks that I've gone to, I was going to say the dark side, but probably the light side. You know, it's very American, very positive and affirmative and can do and very practical. Um, and I think that a lot of what she talks about, I remember from having CBT. When I had CBT before, I did not get on with it. It didn't really work for me. But there's something about this that clicks. Um, and, you know, I think she's, her advice is about, in a nice way, being self-reliant. I've realized this year no one is ever going to give me the advice or feedback or praise or love that I crave. I've got to give that to myself I think that says a lot about self-sufficiency. I love the idea that whenever you were advising people, you always knew that they had it in them and you've almost realised that you have it in yourself. I think British people especially are very, very anxious about anything that might be viewed as conceit or arrogance or big-headedness. And, you know, I realise I can feel however I want about myself. I don't need to tell anyone. I don't need to notify the world that I've decided to to think nice thoughts about who I am and the things I do but you know it's a lovely thing to have and I think that when everything is so outward I think we're in a period of sort of what we call authenticity is really giving away too much and not holding enough back sometimes and actually to have that, you know, quiet core of self-belief, it takes a lot of work. But, and you know, I think it's going to be a work in progress and the work of a lifetime. But it's a lovely thing to be working on. I love what you say about authenticity and this trend for authenticity, almost meaning that we give too much of ourselves. So you've written before that your husband has nicknamed you Puppy because you're high energy and excitable. I love that because I have had the same nickname given to me before. I think it's maybe an extrovert thing. Uh, but do you think that? Do you, do you feel most excitable when you're around other people or by time spent alone? 
That has definitely, definitely shifted as I've moved from my 20s to my 30s. And I do find that when I'm with people, I really find it very, very hard to sort of to hold myself back. You know, I want to be pleased around them. I want to be in a good mood for them. Um, and, you know, and I think I give a lot of energy. I really, I think I, I want to bring people up. Um, I believe in, you know, you're either a drain or a radiator. And I really, really hope that I'm a radiator. Um, but yeah, this comes at the end of a few days of sort of a very um, intense social period. And I think because I do so many really fun things in my work I'm really really lucky there's a big blur between what is work and what is social and I'm often meeting new people which I love but the the older I get the more I find that um I need that time to to recharge and I was really interested to learn which I only learned really relatively recently that a true true extrovert actually gets their energy from being around people which is really really rare for me sometimes it happens but I do get to a pitch of just needing to to be quiet and to be by myself. And I think it's interesting because when I was growing up, I really felt that like it was an extrovert's world and I forced myself to become an extrovert. Um, me and my friend Lauren Bravo, who I think is my spiritual sister because we were raised in very similar ways, even though we didn't meet until we were in our mid-twenties, we both read a lot of old copies of the Reader's Digest because both sets of parents collected them from the 60s and 70s. And there were lots of articles by Monica Dickens about how to go to parties and, you know, saying, like, well, you know, if you go in and feel awkward, everyone else is feeling awkward, so just go and be confident and be charming and no one's looking at you and, you know, not looking people in the eye and being friendly, that's just rude. And, you know, interested people are interesting people. So that is really at my core. And, you know, I grew, I've got five younger sisters. I grew up in a, a big, busy family. You know, you can't really, you know, do a garbo and want to be alone. I do think we've gone a bit far in terms of saying, oh, no, I'm an introvert and I just want to stay at home and cancel all the time and, you know, eat biscuits in bed. A degree of that, of course, we all need that from time to time. But I do think that sometimes there are maybe, if we're not doing what we want to do, or we feel like we don't want to do anything, you know, there are issues that you really need to investigate and it might be, something a bit more serious than being introverted and I do think that every so often it's good for, if you can face it to go no especially you know it's winter and it's dark and nobody ever wants to leave the house for anything but every so often it is good to to go out to a party and just it's building up a kind of social muscle I think and I think it's good to remember how to talk how to listen how to have conversations I love that idea of a social muscle that you build on and I think that perhaps when it doesn't come naturally to you it's a good way to look at it as something you can build well I think in my career as a journalist you know asking nosy questions you know doesn't come naturally um but as soon as I started working I got so much better at parties because you can just pretend to be interviewing people and everyone's got something interesting and you know, as Maya Angelou said, people will remember the way that you made them feel. If 
someone comes away and like, oh, she was really interested in what I had to say. You know, I loved her. She was great. And not to say that it is about making people love you. And that's something that I really do struggle with is, and I think that, you know, there comes a point in everyone's lives where they hit this quite hard, where we all get scared about that. Are we good value? Do people want us at the party unless we bring three bottles, bottles of wine and sparkling conversation and celebrity guests? Like how, when is that, you know, just be yourself. And sometimes I think, is that really enough? And, and who is that anyway? Because I've been constructing this party person for so long. Um, but I think that with all that, you know, the life I've chosen for myself is a really quiet one. It's just me and Dale by the sea. Um, it's complicated, but I think we're all going through it. I think that the biggest mistake any of us could make is to believe that we're the only introvert in the world and everyone else knows what they're doing and everyone's nailing it and having a fabulous time. I think we're all floundering in the dark and that's the best thing to have in your mind when you go to a party you're not sure that you want to go to. And this idea, the idea of being a radiator, where do you think that developed from, that this need to be, or not so much need, but your, your want to be a radiator? I wish I could remember where I first heard it from. It would have been in a book, but I can't remember which book. But I think a lot of it is probably being aware of the drains, having those conversations with people and just being like, oh, God, my life force is being sapped from me. I never want to put another person through (laughs) what I'm feeling right now. And maybe a little bit as well. Um, My parents... I have a complicated relationship, I think, with hosting. And it's funny because I think my mum really loves it. I think my dad loves the idea of it. And mm-hmm. then when his house is full of people, he thinks, oh, no. Um, but so, and not, and there's nothing grand about it. It had a very sort of, you know, rackety, straightforward sort of middle-class upbringing. Also, um, we always lived in big houses that were falling down. So I think there was lots of room to have people to stay. And mum was always trying to find ways of making up for the fact that everybody had been sleeping in like a leak or something. <laughs> and, you know, I remember one of my earliest memories, I think, you know, going to birthday parties and having it drummed into me that I had to kind of thank everybody and I had to say the food was delicious even if I hated it. I mean, lots of this stuff is actually terrible for women. Lots of it, there's no... There's a, a point where... I think we are encouraged to, you know, put our own feelings last and make everyone else's comfort a priority. And that's really not a good thing. And sometimes I wish I could unlearn that. But at the same time, realising that I think interactions are what brighten people's day. And also, you know, when I have spent time with people who I feel truly nourished by, you know, who I find really fascinating and charming and fun, you know, there's no greater gift. I think it's a, it's like the best kind of flirting I mean, there's flirting that's sort of, you know, um, weak at the knees flirting, which um, I think we all need a bit of from time to time. But also just the idea of, you know, charm and fun. I think as well, you know, being very, very interested in your Noel Cowards and Diana Vreelands and I was going to say Dorothy Parker's. I'm not sure Dorothy Parker ever was a beacon of charm exactly, (laughs) but, you know... I think there's obviously a needy bit of me that wants to make people laugh and be entertaining and be and be entertained too. And I think that's what it comes from. I love comedy. It's probably the love of my life. And 
that when you've seen something spectacular or watch something or someone really really make you laugh and you know that's the feeling that I would most like to people to have and I'm a member of Jilly Cooper book club and they're the most brilliant extraordinary talented smart group of radiators I've had the good fortune to know we're all friends because we love the work of Jilly Cooper and the best thing is when we meet up and talk about the books we all know the books off by heart so it is not too challenging a book club but we've met Jilly a couple of times and I love her novels I know in places there are a few sort of problematic faves and some of the things she said about feminism are you know tricky for me to hear but my goodness is that woman ever a radiator she's just fabulous and she is the sort of glowing golden unique gorgeous beacon of light in the center of the room that the magic trick that she performs is she makes everybody feel as glowing and golden as she is you know she is like I'm the most fabulous person in the room. You are also the most fabulous person in the room. This is the most fabulous room. And I will die trying to pull off that trick. How do you and your husband, Dale, balance each other out in that way? Would you say that you're both radiators or you're both, perhaps one of you is more introverted, one's more extroverted? I think Dale is definitely much more introverted. Um, and it's interesting because he was a frontman of um, various bands in the 90s. Um, you know, he's a writer too. He does lots of performing. And I think that there's perhaps something about being in that position where you can have a bit of an invisible boundary. You know, when you're on stage, you can choose exactly what of yourself that you're giving away. I mean, the thing that astonishes me every day about Dale is he is someone who is really really good at remembering details and paying attention and really really listening to what people are saying he's the best listener I know you know I'll have said something in passing and I'll not remember it I won't know what I'm talking about and all you know he'll he's also a truly magnificent present buyer and and just he's really really kind and really thoughtful um I mean I think a lot about love languages I don't know if you're familiar is it five yes um, Affirmation, uh, words, of aff- words of love, words of affirmation, touching, acts of service, giving gifts, and number five. Touch, words of affirmation. I was going to say smell, but that's not right. <laughs> It'll come to us. It will come to us. But anyway, it's all right because we've not forgotten his. Um, I think I'm very, very much um, a words person and a touching person. He is very much an acts of service person and a giver of gifts. And so... It's been a real education, Peter. There are so many different ways to say I love you and to show love. Um, and, you know, I've also got a a rule, a breakable rule, for sure. But I think that the best thing about, you know, love and a committed relationships, you know, whatever form they take or whatever you want to call them, and it's different for everybody, but I've got a secret rule that, you know, we should always go home together. You know, we can arrive separately from whatever we're doing, but if one person gets to the party and wants to bail, you're like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Um, you know, because I think that it's a real sort of act of unity. I'm also superstitious because I have a couple of friends where one started, you know, when the relationship was on the outs, one would go home early and one would stay for ages getting drunk and <laughs> being very upset about everything. So... You know, I think it's, um, and it's changed my relationship as well with 
But I think I'm, you know, the millionth person in the world to have this story where you, in my 20s, I thought I was an extrovert. I thought I was having fun. Um, I drank very, 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 very heavily. And I went to as many parties as I could. And it was really because I was just so directionless. And I think I wanted to put myself in a position where anything would happen to me. I wanted someone to kind of take my life and spin it somewhere glamorous. And I think still, you know, now that's why I love dresses so much. I still feel there's a enchanted party dress out there that will turn me into the girl who's going to have an adventure. But what I've been learning a lot this year, and I've been really working on my relationships with, with drinking and binge eating, I don't think I am an alcoholic, but I've really worked on having a moderate relationship with alcohol, which has been life enhancing because I really haven't always. And I think that it's interesting. We're at a time now, we're having lots of conversations around moderation and sobriety where what we think of as the signs of addiction, the language of addiction doesn't fit us, but we are finding these things are not helpful in that way in our lives. And we have to relearn that relationship. Um, they say, um, back to Brooke again, my, um, Brooke Castillo, Castillo, my best friend. She doesn't know she's my best friend, but she is. Um, to stop binging, you have to build a life you don't want to escape from. And that's what I have now. I don't want to numb out anymore. I'm not going to these parties and making myself as sort of vulnerable and open to all the elements as possible and waiting for the chaos to take hold and, you know, force a direction upon me. I, you know, I'm living in my life and, you know, I want to be with it and I want to go home to it. That is so interesting. I love that phrase. Obviously, choosing the right partner can be a part of that, a part of developing your kind of happiest state. Do do you think that choosing the right partner is a sign of self-love? For me, it was. First of all, I think we do not all need people I really really love being in a relationship at the same time now I think that you know heaven forbid if something were to happen I'm I'm touching a leather chair (laughs) touch leather that's the phrase um you know I'm not sure that I really rush to find someone else I don't I think it would be um I'm going to go very emotional now I, I don't think that's something that I'd want. But before I met Dale, I'd been in all the terrible relationships. And yeah, it's, it's often been observed that you, you know, it, it's Groucho Marx not wanting to be a member of any club that would have him. Um, always, always being with people who were quite withholding or inconsistent with their love and affection and people who made me feel insecure and people that I never felt quite worthy of. Um, And I told myself that those relationships were, you know, I was was being swept along by, you know, it was a grand passion I was consumed and I couldn't take any responsibility when I met Dale, I had a conversation with Grace, my little sister, and I said, oh, it's a bit weird because, um, you see, back to the gifts again. I, I mentioned this book in passing ages ago, and he just 
bought it for me and he's really you know he always texts back and you know one time he um we went to the theatre and I had the flu and he walked me all the way home to Brixton where I lived and then he went back home to Walthamstow and what, what is this game what kind of weirdo is this man and Grace said I think he's lovely I think he loves you I think he's the first person you've gone out with it's really nice you need to let this in you need to trust this. You need to value yourself highly enough so that you're not suspicious of or dismissive of anyone who values you. It's interesting because the cliche is that you've got to love yourself before anyone else will love you. But from what you're saying, it was almost in reverse. You were so loved by Dale so early on and it taught you to realise that you were deserving of that love. Yeah, I think definitely. I think it was really, really healing. And I know this is a bit controversial. I know that, and we talk about, you know, intention setting, you know, back to kind of the um, the hippies and the, um, and I do have a, a hippie streak that's a mile wide, but right before I met him, it was my 27th birthday and I'd been in this truly, truly toxic, I don't know if I can even call it a relationship, but... It's breaking my heart and making me desperately unhappy. But this person who freely said, like, look, this is never going to be any more than us sleeping together. You know, I'm <laughs> I'm not as divorced as I told you I was. Oh. I have many other girlfriends. <laughs> I'm moving to Los Angeles. I'm like, oh, um, so I remember on my birthday saying, like, look, this year I am going to hold out for someone good. I'm not just going to seek validation. I'm going to step away. And this was like pre-Tinder as well, for what it's worth. So thank heavens, because I think if during my lowest ebbs and most intense periods of singledom, I think Tinder would have broken me. So I, I'm not saying for a second that I, I willed this into being, but I think that I did consciously make a decision about what I was looking for and make a decision about valuing myself and holding out and I just got incredibly lucky I do I've been I've got a theory I'm very aware this might sound really privileged and obnoxious but I started to think of myself as just being a really really lucky person I mean lucky in a sort of you know Brittany like hashtag blessed way but just generally I think that more often than not you know something or someone is is looking out for me. I think I've been extraordinary, extra, extraordinarily fortunate with the life I have and the opportunities I have. Down to, you know, again, touching wood, like, you know, health. I've been really lucky with. Um, you know, my nieces and nephews have all been, you know, born sort of safely and they're all well. When I think of the amount of travelling I do and how relatively smoothly that goes you know all the birds that haven't pooed on my head you know it really adds up and then you know all of the the career stuff as well and I find that really inspiring because it makes me think well I've got good luck on my side so I'm going to give this scary thing a shot and if it doesn't happen I can't be lucky every time but I am lucky most times so I'll have another go it's, it's a nice feeling I don't know if, if anyone else is like me and might find that a, just a comforting way to think because the revert and what I think makes you a drain and not a radiator is when you think the whole world is against you. And I think there are really, really very wealthy, privileged people who have that attitude. 
I think that politically what our problem is now is that people who have really nice lives are convinced that they deserve more and that they're not getting things that they ought to get because someone, some mysterious force is taking it from them. And I think that thinking yourself lucky is maybe a different version of gratitude. If gratitude is a little bit hippitastic for you. But I like being grateful too. Well, I think certainly with your career, anyone who's ever read your writing would know that there's a lot more than luck at play. I think that's perhaps a very modest way of putting it. Uh, well, that's a, a very, very kind thing to say. I think it's, well, there are plenty of people who, you know, should be there but don't have the opportunities I do. And it's like, God, I'm really working on envy and jealousy. And every so often I will see a panel. I've got so many truly brilliant, talented friends and... I'll see what other people are doing and I'll have a moment of, oh, I can get asked to do that. And then I'm like, dude, you're a I'm a white blonde woman with, you know, like I said, a very nice, easy life. You know, there are plenty of versions of me, you know, saying the sort of things that I would say. And, you know, I think I, I get more than my fair share of opportunities to, to have a go. I recently read something and I absolutely can't quote who it's by but I read you can do anything but you can't do everything and I think there's something about committing to what your own path is that's difficult but maybe we need to look more at in this age of Instagram I've definitely written that I'm sure other people have said it before me but and I think yeah that that's the message I want to hear like we can all do anything but doing everything again I think it comes back to how dangerously easy it is to tie achievement to self-worth and it's something that I'm really struggling with and I want to I think I'm getting much better at but it's one of my um, my goals for next year I want to feel that I'm good the the only way I can explain it is sometimes I feel like a snowman and you know my the carrot is the article I've just written and the bottom ball is like the book I've just written and the top ball is the next book I'm going to write and like the twigs are like the panel I'm going to be on and every night the snowman melts and every night I have to rebuild the snowman and it's exhausting and what I want to do is just let things be solid that I don't have to keep scrambling to kind of you know that I'm not only the value of the last thing I did. And I think it's so hard. It's so bizarre now, I think, that we live in this really odd time where there's this cult that sprung up around freelancing. When I went freelance, it was because I sort of had to. It was because my boss at List magazine said, you know, we're cutting the budget. Um, do you want to leave? <laughs> and now this sort of hashtag girl boss, but that didn't exist at all in 2012 when I left. But there are so few industries where we could see what everyone else is doing, what all your peers are doing all the time, or not everything that your peers are doing, only the good stuff, only the really big bits. You know, it's weird. It's really weird that I know when everyone's got a book deal. Um, I saw that someone I met three or four years ago at a party and um, inexplicably Facebook friends with, they just announced that they'd had something optioned for the TV. And I'd been feeling a little bit down in the dumps about work not going my way that day. And I thought, I wish them well, but I 
really don't want or need that information about someone who I'm not close to. If it was a close friend, I'd be jumping for joy for them. But that's just another bit of information that is overwhelming me. Um, Tavi Govinson, I think that's how you say her name, wrote a peaceful New York magazine about her life on Instagram. And she now has someone to manage her account. So she decides what she's going to post. She sends the, both the photo and the caption and they do it for her. And it all sounds a bit contrived, but she said that now she doesn't actually look at Instagram. So on any given day, I think of 11 or 12 people instead of 4,000. And that really stuck with me. I think it's very difficult to be empathetic and to be a human and respectful and understanding of other people's humanity when we've got constant abstract little pieces of information about thousands of people that we met once or barely know and we dangerously think we know because we're not having real exchanges with them we're just throwing out bits of our lives with each other and that comes back to drains and radiators I think it's quite draining if you know you meet someone at a party say hi how are you like great and then like and here's my cv (laughs) here's the talk I just did and I understand because we live in a world where we're all being made to feel increasingly secure about, insecure about this and we need to keep selling ourselves. And so the condition is really exacerbating itself. It's a vicious circle. I think it comes back to what you said with your analogy earlier. I think it's knowing who you are without being a sum of your parts mm. or your work. Yes, which is difficult. And I think what I've realised now is, and that's the value of time alone, I don't know who I'm finding it out who I am really and that's very very exciting you know it should be a nourishing and nurturing time I'm really trying to unpick a lot of the assumptions that I've made about myself based on who I've been trying to perform for other people and I'm really excited about having this core of me that I don't have to share and again it comes back to that that we need to share absolutely all of ourselves and I think that the value of time on your own well spent is protecting it um i think it might be elizabeth gilbert or brene brown everything i come back to it's either jilly cooper or elizabeth gilbert or brene brown but about the difference between um what was i think being being personal and being intimate that it's really powerful i think especially for women when they tell their stories and they share their experiences but to also be aware of you know, what is raw, what you're still trying to understand. And, you know, I'm someone who has done a lot of personal writing, but I've been very lucky and I've almost always been able to do it in a way where I'm standing back and trying to tell the story as a writer rather than trying to tell the story as a a hurt person or a confused person or a damaged person. Because you went freelance fairly early on in your career, do you think there was a temptation to give too much with the personal writing or to almost you had to test the waters to find that boundary oh definitely um what was great actually is I cut my teeth doing lots of I guess op-eds um I wrote a lot for um I think it's um MSM had a site and it was a really kind of can you do 800 words on this something that's happened normally showbiz news Kate Middleton came up a lot um and it's really like doing a a school debate and that there were times when I was well I can find an angle on anything um and then I got to a point when I thought really only quite recently or maybe I don't want to find an angle on anything maybe 
I think, you know, over that period of time when I was doing that writing, we've slowly become saturated with hot takes. Um, I mean, something that, because of Bliss, I edited the real life section. It's the magazine I worked at before mm-hmm. I went freelance. And so I got a lot of experience in writing stories for people and they'd talk to me and I'd be very careful about wanting to capture their voice but also wanting to protect them and tell their story in terms that made them strong and you know sometimes they you know say extra details that there was one really heartbreaking story about a girl who it was gang raped and it was bleak and she told me all about it and you know, I had conversations with her and said, it's, it's up to you, but there are things here that I want to leave out because I think that you might feel more vulnerable if those things are out into the world and that, you know, you went through this, but you can... I want this to be something that makes you feel strong. And so having that experience was the best grounding I could possibly have in doing that kind of personal writing. That's incredible. I think there are a few journalists with that huge level of empathy to actively be able to advise and be there as a human as well as also being there as an interviewer well I was so so lucky to have the experience of working there it was just the most incredible like journalism school really um and just with the best people the the greatest team it was the the most fun I that job is one of the loves of my life um but you know equally I think that there are young writers or new writers coming up who see that that kind of writing does well. And when it's the beginning of your career, um, and because of the experience that one has, and you've not really got the opportunities to write about other things, you say, oh, I'll just, I'll write personal essays because uh, I know the subject. <laughs> and I do think it's harder than it looks. And quite often I um, had to advise people who asked me for advice and said I think you need to to wait and know that you can write about this from a position of strength rather than tell the the sort of juicy unedited story that ultimately makes you more vulnerable than you know or makes you doubly vulnerable where would you now draw the boundary with your personal essays if you were to do that content still which you which you do you still write that personal content um I suppose my view has always been I never ever ever wanted to be gratuitous if I'm bringing a detail of myself to a piece I want it to serve the piece where you know it can be funny or illustrative or empathetic I bring it to the reader because my hope is that it is something that the reader can relate to and I think that if it's the personal information isn't serving a function in the writing then it has to go it's interesting. I really want to write more about marriage and relationships because they fascinate me more than anything else. Equally, I've been married for not quite four years. And as I said, I don't have any children. I'm not sure that the world wants to hear what I have to say. I think that if you've, you know, been married at 20, 30 years or, you know, you've been divorced and like, you've got a much more interesting standpoint than I have. So we'll see where that goes. I would absolutely want to hear about that because I think for some people they get married to automatically have kids and so that's it's not almost a time where you think about the marriage itself whereas I think having the time to process that. Well that's something I started writing something really just for me to kind of see where it went and what I was doing with it about being really on the fence about having children and thinking that I probably won't 
and realizing I'm not quite sure that I'm ready yet. And I've written about it before. And there's always been, um, you know, a bit of a mum's net backlash. And I think it's such an interesting subject. And I think it's something that I think lots of women grow up believing that that they will be mothers. And another thing as well is I've got some very dear friends who are desperate to be parents and for various reasons they can't. And it's heartbreaking and devastating. And that's really opened my eyes as well because I feel as though I should want a child if I was going to have one so badly that I would be devastated if I couldn't. Whereas if I heard the news that I couldn't, I don't know how I'd feel. I imagine I'd be much more upset and distressed than I think I would, but I I don't know how I'd feel about it, but I, I don't think it would be devastating. I really overthink this one. And what I really, you know, the simple answer, which is I like the status quo. But yeah, I do think it's very interesting that mother is so central to what we think the function of woman is. And I would really love to challenge that more. Do you think perhaps we don't, take seriously how much you give when you have kids and how much of a commitment that is because it's seen as so much the done thing as you say when people think woman people often think mother in the same sentence without considering that's an if and not a when I think that every mother does it differently and in some ways very much on their own terms and I think that's wonderful equally I think there are so many people who will judge you and you're damned if you do you're damned if you don't it's really, really weird that it, this cult... And I love seeing the communities around parenthood that are springing up on social media and what a valuable and brilliant source of support they are and, you know, what the mothers I know get from those. Equally, I'm kind of jealous. I'm like, I, I want that for the child-free people, but I don't know what that would be. Or maybe you could argue, oh, no, that is the rest of the world. You don't need that. It's fine. But it would be nice to have conversations with people um, who feel like they chose their choice, as I'm doing. At the moment, you say that you're working on developing a relationship with yourself and working out almost who you are beyond your journalism and your work and all the amazing things you've achieved in your career. When do you feel most yourself? Oh, I love that question. Um, I want to say maybe reading, although that's so immersive and I I think again reading is a kind of you know it's a numbing out pleasure but it's one that that is okay but I think I really love being in a world and not thinking about or not being distracted by my own thoughts really boring thoughts about oh I need to send an invoice or I must send that email back and so that feeling of flow I love also I very much feel the most myself when I'm stomping up a big hill with my headphones on listening to fairly terrible hip-hop really loudly or any music depending on my mood that feels really really pleasurable and pure um it's one of my favorite things to do by myself and again it's really really hard to be in a bad mood when you're listening to hip-hop and I just can't resist a beat And what's your favourite memory about being alone? Uh, One of my favourite things to do if I'm ever... And I think it comes back to food. I really love eating alone. You know, I love being sociable with it. And 
because I commute in and out of London and I'm often, I'm always eating by myself between meetings. Oh, actually, I know what it is. Um, I was a guest speaker at uh, Trinity College in Dublin. They had their end of term debate. This house believes um, we should all go naked. I think the naked rambler had been rearrested. Um, we lost. There was an argument for being clothed, which one, but I was, you know, I, th- I think because it gets quite cold in Dublin, I think that's what put people off. And so, that, and this is quite a famous place and I should know what it's called and it's escaped me. I feel any people listening might be like, how could you not know it's this? But it's a place that's it's a posh supermarket downstairs. It reminds me very much of the Harvey Next Food Hall. There's like fabulous flowers and you like gorgeous exotic vegetables. And then you go up. And there is a a restaurant, and I and I just turned thirty, and I had a solo lunch, and I remember I think I had two glasses of champagne, and a Caesar salad, and chips, and a Knickerbocker glory. Sounds spectacular. <laughs> and that was when I thought, oh, this is nice. Oh, eating alone is, especially if you want to go somewhere. That I again, food. It's a in restaurants it's something that I love and I you know love spending a lot of money on but often I'll go to I will happily eat chewy chicken at the back of an empty Weatherspoons at four o'clock in the afternoon for the bliss of the Weatherspoons being empty and it can just be me and my book and my confusing sad food you know because sometimes I, I think I love quiet um I get increasingly overwhelmed by noise and being able to control the sounds around me. I really, really love quiet spaces. And that, and I love being green space as well and being by the sea and hearing, you know, the sound of the sea, not the sound of people shouting. It's not my favourite. <laughs> like being alone on the train is my least favourite as well. <laughs> I empathise. That's the wonderful thing about being alone. It's a totalitarian regime, isn't it? Mm. I think that's it. I'm much more of a control freak than I realised. And I think that's to do with the way I grew up as well, that, you know, there's always chaos in a house with that many people. Um, Everything's a bit messy and a bit noisy and a bit rambunctious. And maybe that's a little bit of why I don't want to have children as well. I want more control over my environment than is natural. Ah, you see, I'm getting to know myself (laughs) and I'm not sure I like what I found. (laughs) Daisy, thank you so much. It's been so wonderful talking to you and I can absolutely verify that you are a total radiator. Well, it's been my absolute pleasure. I'm so glad that you are. Thank you so much for having me on. This, I'm afraid, is goodbye for now. It's the final episode for Series 1 of the Alonement Podcast. So again, I just want to give a huge thank you to everyone who's tuned in so far and been in touch with your lovely messages and feedback. The idea of being alone together is never more significant than right now. And I really hope you found some time over the past few months to enjoy quality time with yourself. If you've enjoyed listening to the first series, please do consider leaving a quick review on Apple Podcasts. I'll be back again soon with series two. In the meantime, do keep in touch on alonement.com or by following alonement on Instagram at alonementofficial. I would love to hear from you. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365 day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details.